to the book of 1 Samuel once again, chapter 2, verses 12 through 26. Uh, the overarching theme of our series in 1 Samuel so far is Christian maturity or spiritual maturity. And we've talked about how to pursue Christian maturity in difficult seasons by giving our sorrows to Jesus so that he can enlarge our hearts with his compassion and his wisdom so that then we can draw near to the sorrowing in Jesus' name and uh, help them give their hearts to Jesus and this cycle can continue. And we've also talked about uh, learning how to keep God's good gifts from becoming idols by returning them to Jesus so that he can then use them to bless others like he's blessed us and thus giving us more joy-filled and generous hearts. Um, and honestly, I think the ideas that we've explored in those texts are so revolutionary. Uh, I think they're so life-changing and they're so life-giving. I really would encourage you to go back and uh, re-listen to them. And uh, I, I know that means that you have to go back and listen to me again. And I know how sad that would make all of you, and I'm sorry about that. But you can encourage yourself by knowing uh, that you'll be learning how to uh, mature in seasons of sorrow if you do that. Um, I, I'm, I'm kidding a little bit. But, but in all seriousness, I do think that the more we learn how to walk together with Jesus in both heartbreak and happiness in spiritually mature ways, the more robust our congregational health uh, will be. The, the more that we'll know Jesus, the more that we will delight in Jesus, the more confidence we'll have in Jesus if this is the case. Uh, we'll look more like him, we'll talk more like him, we'll repent more readily, we'll forgive more freely, we'll be more patient, we'll be more wise, we'll be uh, better witnesses to the gospel, and frankly, we'll just enjoy one another more in the gospel if we grow in this area together. I, I think the ideas in those sermons are just so important, they, and they really are worth listening to again, even if you have to suffer a little bit through them. Uh, but for this morning, I have another idea for you that is also, I think, life-changing. It's an idea that is repeated over and over again in the Bible. Waiting patiently on the Lord for deliverance. Uh, in our text this morning, we are going to see physically abusive, spiritually abusive leaders. Uh, we're going to see a culture that supported that abuse. And we're going to see Eli faithfully bearing witness to the gospel as he waits on the Lord to stop the abuse, because at this point, it's only the Lord who can. Uh, we're all probably aware of the many, 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 many scandals that have rocked the church for the last 20, 30, 40 years, the child abuse scandals, the sexual abuse scandals, the spiritual abuse scandals. Uh, we see these, some of us, have experienced them very personally and directly, and out of the many questions that we will that will arise in our hearts as we see them or as we experience them, one of them will eventually be, what can I do to help when I am not in a position to change any of it? I don't have the skills, I don't have the, the power, I don't have the name recognition, I don't have the platform, I don't even have the physical location. Like, what can I do to, to help when I can't change any of it. And the answer that we see in the passage in Eli is we wait patiently and faithfully on the Lord. Uh, we pray, we bear witness, we call for repentance, we give the gospel because we know that the Lord will act in his time and in his way 
because Jesus is the resurrection and the life who really does bring life from death. And so that's our goal, which is to learn how to live with hope in Jesus while we wait on him to act for our deliverance. So let's read 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 26, pray, and then we'll reflect more on this together. 1 Samuel 2, starting in verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. Thus far the reading of God's own word. Uh, let's pray together. Father, we want to know you. We want to hear your voice. We want to uh, follow you and trust you and uh, grow in maturity so that we can wait on you. And Lord, we know that your word teaches us how to do these things, but we also know that without your Spirit's work in our lives, that your word will not profit us. And so, Father, we pray that your Spirit now would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe your Bible. Uh, Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, and may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word, Please may it all now be pleasing in your sight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> uh, in order to wait for the Lord Jesus to deliver you, you need to know that Jesus understands the misery of the situation that you're in. And this is true if you're waiting on Jesus to save you from the misery of mourning or the misery of job loss 
or of oppressive work environments, the misery of unfulfilled longings, the misery of sickness or broken relationships, uh, whatever valley of the shadow of death experience you're having, you will not be able to wait patiently on the Lord with faith, with prayer, with courage, or with hope if you don't believe that Jesus truly understands the gravity of the situation that you're in. And, and this is one of the reasons why I love the Bible, because it just speaks so clearly and directly about the brokenness of the world and even the brokenness of the church uh, that we can experience sometimes. And you can see that in our passage this morning. Our passage begins in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Uh, when the Bible says that someone is worthless and they don't know the Lord, that means they don't even try to walk with Jesus in paths of righteousness. In fact, they try to do the opposite at the most extreme end. They are violent, they are abusive, they are corrupt, and they teach others to sin like them, to join them in their corruption and their violence and their abuse. So back in the book of Judges, which again is the context of 1 Samuel, uh, that 1 Samuel is addressing, uh, we're told about worthless men who corrupted the priesthood with money. They were literally buying and selling priests. About those who sexually assaulted others, who went to war against their brothers out of rage and then murdered their neighbors to try and fix the problems that the war created. That's the last four-ish chapters of Judges, which... Again, if you go home and read them, you should preview them if you have young children before you let them read them because there's some very ex explicit and difficult passages there. It's in God's word. We shouldn't be more prudish than God, but we should also recognize God would not maybe want uh, four-year-olds to have to read through uh, a Sodom and Gomorrah-like story, if that makes sense. Uh, so anyway, the very first thing we're told about Eli's sons is that they have learned the very worst of their culture's sins. They are corrupt, they are violent, and they are abusive men. And what makes it so bad is that they are priests in the house of God. They are like pastors and elders in many ways. They are the spiritual leaders of God's people who are called to teach them God's ways. They're called to teach righteousness, teach honesty, teach self-control, compassion, forgiveness, faithfulness, mercy, both by word and by their example. That's their role. That's why the priests were there in large part. Uh, and just like you rightfully have the expectation that your pastors and elders will be godly, patient, righteous men who love the Lord and are doing their best to walk with the Lord so that they can help you walk with the Lord, Israel had that same expectation too. And God, in fact, sets out those very standards for uh, me and your elders and deacons and First Timothy and Titus, that elders and pastors are called to be uh, above reproach. So if reproach is here, you have to be above it. Uh, the husband of one wife, if they're married, self-controlled, respectable, that is worthy to be respected, hospitable, uh, able to teach the ways of the Lord, uh, not a drunkard, but gentle, not quarrelsome, so they don't want or love controversy. They don't seek out fighting. They're not a lover of money. That's all 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 3. This is what God's leaders and God's church are called to be like. They're to be spiritually healthy. That's the term Paul will use. They're to be mature in the faith. That's the term James will use. We correctly expect our spiritual leaders will be able to represent Jesus well with humility and patience and wisdom. 
that they will be spiritually healthy and mature servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when they aren't, there is only misery and tragedy. When God's leaders have an unhealthy or immature relationship with the Lord, at best what happens is God's people just don't get the discipleship that they need to mature well in the Lord and learn how to love him and serve him. But at worst, what happens is that these unchristlike leaders abuse and hurt the sheep. And that abuse damages both the flock's relationship to each other and even more devastatingly, their relationship with Jesus. And that's what we see in verses 13 to 16. In verse 13, we're told that when God's people were bringing their offerings to God, the priests and their servants would go up to them and they would plunge a fork, verse 14, into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priests would take for them for himself. Uh, without going into too much detail, uh, different offerings were given using different cookware. Pans, kettles, cauldrons, and pots. Those were for thank offerings, guilt offerings, free will offerings, uh, the offerings for some tithes, and sin offerings. So all the offerings. Now, regardless of the offering, what was supposed to happen is that after the meat was cooked, some of it would be burned on the altar, and some of it would be eaten by the priest, and also would be eaten by the offerer. And the point of that is that you and the priest and the Lord are all eating together. You're sharing a meal. It represents communion with God and you, with God and his people, and with you and God's people. Uh, so if it's for a sin offering, the meal uh, is one that you're eating to celebrate being welcomed into God's house freely and, and joyfully. You're celebrating peace with God and neighbor. Or like we talked about last Sunday, if it was a vow offering, you're celebrating uh, the work that you and Jesus did together in fulfilling that vow. It's a celebration of Jesus' work in you, of his strengthening you, of, of his work in growing you in immaturity. See, so in other words, these meals are about celebrating and experiencing and growing your relationship with God. And in that sense, it's much like the Lord's Supper, isn't it? And you should think about that because the Lord's Supper is encapsulating a lot of those elements in itself. But, in our passage, the priests then come and they take a huge portion of that. So that means someone doesn't get to eat. Who's that going to be? The Lord? Well, you think you would make sure the Lord got something put on his altar. The priest? The priest is obviously eating what he wants to eat. So who's the one not eating? Probably you, right? And then to make it worse, we read in verse 15, I'm going to read this here. Before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. So long story short, the fat belonged to the Lord. That was his portion. It was the thing that you wanted to be sure was given to Jesus because it was the best part of it. Uh, these priests and their servants were not just taking the fellowship meal from God's people, but the Lord's portion as well. And so the abuse here is really jaw-dropping. Uh, how can you feel forgiven if the sacrifices are imperfect? How can you feel at home with the Lord when God's leaders steal from you 
and you can't eat God's fellowship meal with him because they've stolen from you. How can you feel safe in God's house when the priests who are supposed to be serving Jesus, the gentle shepherd, are threatening you with violence? You can give it to me now or I can take it from you. Or when, as we learn in, down in verse 22, when they were using their positions of power to prey on young women. Uh, this is the context. This is the misery that God's people had to endure. And you can see here that Jesus sees it and he names it very clearly for what it is. And that's important uh, because it's what allowed Eli to wait patiently on the Lord in such a faithful way. And that moves us to our next point, which is waiting in weakness. So uh, the first thing I want to point out here is that in verse 22, we're told that Eli is very old. So not old, very old, right? And with very oldness comes weakness. And not just physical weakness, but also political weakness and social weakness. Uh, when you become very old, you typically lose power and become very vulnerable. And this was evident even in King David's life. So King David shows up in the middle of 1 Samuel as this strong, vibrant, charismatic, handsome, powerful man. And he is that way in 1 Samuel and in 2 Samuel. But then in 1 Kings, we meet David at the end of his life. And there he's very old. He's very weak. And one of his sons, Adonijah, decides that he's going to take the kingdom once his doddering old dad is dead. And so Adonijah gathered all of these politically powerful people, people who had been led by David, who loved David, and who knew that God had told David to make his son Solomon king after him. But they went off with Adonijah anyway because David was weak and probably wouldn't be able to fulfill God's word anyway. But since most of you have probably heard of Solomon, and none of you have heard of Adonijah. Uh, you know that plot was thwarted, right? Uh, but it wasn't David who stopped it. No, it was his younger, more socially powerful wife, Bathsheba, and the younger, more politically powerful Nathan, the prophet, who gathered the younger, stronger, more physically able people to stop the coup. Uh, when I was in seminary, I remember that Eli was really looked down on as something of a, a weak coward. Because if he was really a priest of the Lord, he would have taken a sword and he would have killed his own sons in the name of Jesus. Uh, you'll see that in commentaries too. Uh, Eli is a failure because he didn't execute his own sons. And as I was rereading this portion, I was reminded of that. And I sort of had this vision of uh, Moby Dick. When Ahab is on the back of a whale and he says, from hell's heart, I stab at thee, right? I stab you with all the hatred of hell. And I just imagined Eli saying, from Jesus's heart, I stab at thee. And just kind of incongruous, right? Uh, while I totally believe that Eli owns some responsibility for what his sons were allowed to do, and God is going to put that on him in the next passage, I think the idea that a very old man who, unlike David, was never a warrior, with no political power, could walk up to two young, physically strong men, surrounded by other young, physically strong men who are completely ready to be violent, as the text tells us, right? Give us what we want, or we will beat you up and take it. 
the idea that he's going to walk up to them and stab them to death is ridiculous. Uh, and that's aside from the fact that he's putting to death his own sons, right? No, Eli is very old. And as a very old man, he does something that I think is incredibly brave. He approaches his sons who practice violence and who surround themselves with violent people in a culture that blesses violence and thinks it's okay. He goes up to two boys who clearly don't respect their father. Maybe they don't even love him at all in any real sense. Eli goes up to them and he rebukes them. He risks violence. I mean, what if they hit him? When you are old, you are frail, right? He risks physical violence. He risks emotional damage. What if his sons just laid into him and insulted and broke his heart? He risks them just cutting them out of his life. That's sort of the, the, the slowest end, right? Have you ever been in a situation where you knew that after you said your piece, someone may never talk to you again? That's at least the situation here, I believe. His physical health, his emotional health, his relational health, they are all on the line. But this very old man, bereaved of his wife, grieving his largely ineffective ministry, brokenhearted by the wickedness of his own sons, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, he goes to his sons and he confronts them. And he says in verse 26, if someone sins against a man, God will intercede for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? And so it's important we realize uh, that Eli is showing great wisdom in how he rebukes his son. So when Eli asks, if someone sins against the Lord, who will mediate for him? The answer is not, biblically, well, no one. <laughs> that is not the answer biblically. The answer, at least in the Old Testament, is the priests. The priests do that. It's the priest's job to pray for the people and intercede and ask God for mercy and to offer sacrifices and, and prayers and ask God for help. It's the priest's job to represent the forgiving, gracious, gospel-centered character of Jesus to his people. And so and when I hear this, I think Eli's point seems to be, look, my sons, if you aren't doing your job when others need it, who will do it when you need it? Uh, if you aren't representing the gospel to Israel and God's character to Israel, then who is left to represent it to you? See, I think what Eli is trying to do is to provoke them to see the way their sins affect themselves as well as others. And there's just a lot of wisdom here again. Uh, when you're dealing with very selfish people, people who are so turned in on themselves that they only see their own desires and wants and they only see the world through their own needs sometimes the best way to get them to think of others is to help them see the way that their treatment of others actually hurts them right it's like pastoral judo <laughs> don't you understand that when you hurt them you hurt yourself you know that's kind of what he's what he's saying because again eli's goal is to get them to repent he wants his sons to turn and live he wants them to confess their sins, to put away their violence, to ask God for forgiveness, and to be reconciled to Jesus and to Jesus' people, and I'm sure also uh, to him. My friends, there are a lot of times, I think, uh, when terrible things are just beyond our power 
to fix. We aren't strong enough. We aren't wise enough. We aren't powerful enough. Or maybe we're just not in the right place. Maybe the problem is in an area where we simply don't live. Or we don't know the right people. Or we don't have the knowledge. The reality is that in a broken, fallen world, there are things that we simply have to wait for Jesus to fix. But what you see here in Eli is that that waiting isn't passive. Eli shows that one important way to wait on the Lord faithfully is by courageously, faithfully, wisely calling for repentance and opening up and continuing to open up that possibility of forgiveness and reconciliation. Because when we do that, we are bearing witness to the reality that Jesus saves uh, that God can, in fact, fix what is broken, that the worthless can be made worthy in Jesus, and that those who don't know the Lord uh, can, in fact, come to know the Lord, that Jesus can and does, in fact, raise the dead. Now, we know that wasn't God's will for them. We're going to talk about that a little bit next week. But Eli didn't know that. Just like we don't know that about anyone that we're talking to. No, what Eli knows is what you and I know, which is today is the day of salvation. And while it's called today, repent and believe the gospel. And God hears the repentance. He's willing to forgive, and he offers that to his sons out of the hope of the gospel. And that's what it looks like, in part, to wait patiently on the Lord, to trust in the merciful character of God, and to continue to call for repentance, even among those who are exceedingly wicked. And that brings us then to our final point, which is the, uh, the hope of transformation. So between God's description of Eli's sons and Eli's call to repentance is this uh, really endearing description of Samuel and his mom, Hannah, and his dad, Elkanah, and Eli. And what I want you to realize is that uh, when Eli, who is very old, takes on the responsibility of raising this young boy, Samuel, who, remember, was given to him as a baby, even though, his, even though his own sons have gone so far astray that it says something so encouraging about Eli's hope for the transformation of Israel. And also Hannah's, by the way. Remember, Hannah and Elkanah worshipped at Shiloh where all this abuse was taking place, and yet Hannah said, my son needs to serve the Lord. Even in an abusive environment, even in a corrupt place, Jesus still needs servants. And Eli says the same thing. Jesus still needs servants. And I think it's very profound in Eli's case. We all know what it, what it is to look at our weaknesses and our failures, to look at situations that are terrible and broken, that are unfixable with our power and skill set. And we all know what it's like to want to throw up our hands and say, well, it's hopeless, right? The church is broken. God's pastors and her elders, they're his elders, they're crooks, they're morons, Satan is winning. The only thing we can do maybe is you know, hunker down in our basements as individuals and pray for the end surrounded by canned goods. And you're all thinking, well, Pastor Matt, that's not what we do. Uh, we just disappear into social media and wait for Jesus to come back. My friend, to wait patiently on the Lord as we see Eli doing, it's not giving up to despair, it's not disappearing it's remaining faithful even when it's all going wrong because we trust, we have faith that Jesus is still living 
and active. And so Eli takes Samuel and he puts him in verse 18 in a linen ephod. That is, he makes him to serve in the place of a priest. And why did he do that? God doesn't tell him to do that. It's because Eli knows that one day Jesus will bring the transformation that's needed. He will deliver and rebuild his people. But until that day, there needs to remain faith. He needs to remain faithful. And he needs to teach Samuel the faith so that, Lord willing, Samuel can remain faithful and then teach it to the next priest and continue to teach it to God's people and so on and so on until that day when the Lord acts. Because then there is a community of people who are faithful and spiritually mature, whose hearts have been opened through walking well with Jesus in heartbreak and in happiness, who are ready then to disciple the larger church in the ways of the Lord and the world into the life of the gospel. And my friends, what, this is what it means to wait patiently on the Lord, and it's why it requires spiritual maturity from us, because the world is broken, and the church is also broken. And while there are things that we can affect in our little corner of the world, and there are things that we need to do, there are also plenty where the only thing we can do is wait on the Lord Jesus to act as only he can. But as we wait, and as we wait well, we are building ourselves into a mature, spiritually, excuse me, spiritually mature community where when the Lord acts, we can be very useful servants in the house of Jesus. So let's wait as the Lord would have us. Uh, let's wait by calling even the worst sinners to repentance and by praying their, for their repentance because Jesus saves. And let's wait by being as faithful as we can in whatever corner Jesus has put us in. Even if we're very old, none of you are, uh, even if we're worn down, uh, let's believe that Jesus is here and that he will act. And let's live out that hope by modeling and teaching the faith so that when the Lord is ready, he can pour people into our fellowship and they can learn from us as we have learned from Jesus how to be faithful followers of Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, thank you that you understand the misery of difficult situations. Uh, please help us to trust in your unfailing love, which uh, not only sees us, but meets us and gives us what we need to wait patiently for you to act. Father, please help us to wait with courage and hope to uh, call for repentance, to give forgiveness, to grow in our discipleship, and, and also to make disciples. And we ask all this because you have said that all who seek you find you, and that you are near and that you are living and active in our lives through Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.